Hello, and welcome to the Sensi Lab Creative AI Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. My name is John McCormick. I'm the director of Sensi Lab. And joining me at the remote console today in her wave particle quantum of solace, physicist, PhD researcher, and AI artist, Nina Ratchich. Hey, Nina, how are you? Hey, hey, I'm good. And we're also joined for the first time by Sensi Lab Creative AI lecturer, Dr. Maria Teresa Yano. Hello, Maria Teresa Yano. How are you? Hi, <laughs> We're going to call you Teresa because that's what you like to be called, right? Yeah, yeah. Teresa is yeah. fine. Welcome. And the man often described as the cage pangolin of computational creativity in the wet markets of creative AI, Professor Simon Colton. Simon, welcome back. Great to be here. I'm not feeling caged at all after six weeks of a 100% lockdown. Yeah, I, well, feeling's mutual. <laughs> um, so speaking of being locked down, we've titled today's episode, Don't Look Back. But looking back to just a few months ago, the world was a very different place and none of us expected to be where we are now, even though the experts have been warning about global pandemics for many years. And I'm sure many people have checked out Bill Gates' TED Talk from 2012, where he predicts exactly pretty much what's happening now. And while some countries are doing better than others, the general feeling is that the first wave of infection seems to be on a downward trend. And there's now a lot of pressure for economies to reopen and things to return slowly to some kind of normal or probably a, a new normal. But if you look at a lot of the modeling, the coronavirus isn't going to just disappear. There's still going to be outbreaks, probably ongoing battles with infections and lockdowns will probably reoccur at some stage. And in particular, if you look at some of the predictive modeling, there's a general feeling that without a vaccine, that there'll be major waves of infection that could continue until even 2022. So with international travel almost impossible, major gatherings and events all postponed, cancelled or run virtually, it's a completely different world. So we thought we'd talk about how this is affecting us and how it affects creative AI and beyond. So I want to start just by asking, how does everyone feel about this switch to running their lives virtually? I was thinking about this last night and I'm completely conflicted over it. Really can't come to any positive or negative decision, really. And just to give you a few examples, I really want online lecturing, you know, delivery of undergraduate and master's level material to, to really thrive. This is its time. And it's been waiting and waiting. We've been, we've been letting another online providers and really, really universities should step up to give really great online provision to their students. However, students are going to realize they should be paying less for that. So we could all be out of a job. There's, there's a, a conflict there straight away. Another conflict is with conferences. Um, I'm a father of a four-year-old, so it's very difficult to justify being away for a week to go to a conference around the world. And so in many respects, it's great that I'm going to these conferences online. Um, but again, the conflict there is that I went to an online conference a couple of weeks ago, and it was really a fraction of itself, a shadow of its normal self. And I realized that I really like going out and getting drunk with the, uh, with the delegates and chatting and going over ideas. So there's a conflict there. I really want online, lecture, uh, online conferences to do well, but um, I don't think they're necessarily going to be anything like normal conferences. The final one is that I, I'm a, I work from home most of the time. I live in one country and I work in three different other countries. Um, so it's great that I don't feel particularly bad about not going into an office because everyone's working from home. There's also the environmental aspect um, of not traveling and whether it's just commuting. When I lived in London, I used to commute for two hours a day, every day. So not doing that is fantastic. Um, so there's lots of benefits to working at home. However, I kind of miss more than ever the physical space. 
And the idea of working in a place like Sensilab remotely is quite clearly crazy, given all of the amazing opportunities for interaction with people and interaction with technology that you get there. It would be very sad if I wasn't able to come to Melbourne this year or, or next year because of the virus. So I, I can't say either way, um, sadly, that this is a great thing, you know, and finally um, my moment has come, um, or that it's the end of the world and it's, you know, terrible. I'm completely conflicted. So online teaching has been around for quite a while with the, remember the rise of MOOCs in sort of around 2012, I think was the first year. And, and I guess they were, all those MOOCs were run for free. Now there's a few established MOOC platforms like Coursera and, and so on. So maybe this is the new, the new normal in terms of teaching students. The reason that why MOOCs never took over from universities, you know, after eight years now of them being around was for that physical experience. I think part of it was really important. So Completely disbanding that would be a bit of a problem. Now that a lot of students have to be uh, uh, learning from home, you know, uh, from school, they have shown, I mean, I think some studies have shown that it's not the same, definitely, and they get a very tired, you know, of being in front of a, of a, of a screen, and it's just not the same kind of uh, interaction as well. So I, I don't think that online teaching is going to take over, and maybe that people is going to say, oh, yeah, this is better than, you know, to be paying a lot more for the experience when you are physically there. I think but the thing is that maybe online teaching has to take over. Certainly in the next couple of years, it may well be that we, we have to deliver all of our lectures online. And, and the question is whether students will pay for that and whether they will think it's worthwhile or whether they'll go and get their degrees from Coursera or um, these other online places and it'll seem weird when students do come back together and there's like 200 of them cheek to cheek or elbow to elbow in a room together that might actually be quite offensive to some people by the time everything is shaking down it might not i mean i'm hopeful that we will go back to a close to normal new normal but we may also have to realize that what we're calling a blended learning that people will learn some people will come in some people will stay home yeah um, from day to day yeah, but uh, to answer also your question, John. Yeah, so I before coming to Monash, so I just started in Monash two months ago, and before coming to Monash, I was working from home. Uh, I worked from home for about eight to nine years, so I have a lot of experience uh, on that. And uh, I have to say that um, I mean I also am a bit conflicted about it because before coming to Monash, I was really looking forward to. Uh, being able to be in an office and sharing with people, you know, have that interaction mm. that you were talking about, John. And, and not only that, but, you know, because I was living in Oxford and working uh, in for London, uh, I was missing a lot of opportunities of uh, events, you know, academic talks uh, and things like that. So I really was looking forward to working and living in the same city so I could just attend to these things. And now that everything has uh, moved online, uh, I'm being, it's been very pleasant that I'm working from home, but I'm not missing out on these events because now you have uh, a lot of talks are uh, being online and being recorded and just uh, being uh, made available for people to watch later. And I think that's very valuable. But again, uh, I was very happy going to the office. And as Simon said, I mean, being Sensi Lab in the space is really amazing and the people are really great to work with. So I miss that a lot as well. And I want to go back. Nina, what do you miss most about the way things were 
Okay, this is bizarre. For some reason, somebody's doing some kind of power tool thing above my <laughs> building right now, which has like never happened. I'm like, what is that loud noise? This is so bad. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it's never happened. If, it, in my if suddenly like a big drill comes through the roof and yeah. plaster starts falling on your head, well, should we call someone or? I know the people who live upstairs as well, and I really don't know what on earth they would be doing <laughs> just get a broomstick and start banging bang the roof yeah with the broom shut up i'm recording a podcast well i guess maybe we should keep that in because it's kind of this is the reality <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice, yeah, it's a nice touch yeah that's true i just was thinking then when you were all talking like one thing that we literally don't have which i realize now when i see someone in person it's like really intense is we don't have eye contact anymore and it's like yeah. really sad. Like you can talk mm. to somebody for hours and like that you've never made eye contact. It's really creepy. <laughs> and then you see someone in person and then you like, like my housemate came home for the first time in weeks. So it's like the first person I've seen kind of, I don't know, like a friend and just like having the presence and like, be, like looking at her eyes. I was like, this is almost overwhelming. So I wonder if we kind of forget about all that stuff. Do you think for a lot of people it's been, you know, several months you know, sort of getting onto Zoom meetings and doing everything remotely. There's been some studies that have supposedly come out that say that it's actually a lot more taxing mentally to do Zoom meetings than to do face-to-face meetings. And maybe that's part of it because you don't have that normal kind of interaction that you have. And also that you can zone out or something in Zoom meetings, maybe. You can, you know, you can flip the Zoom meeting and be doing other things if you're not you know, particularly engaged in what's happening in the meeting. It does seem weird. And I ran into some people in the street yesterday when we were going shopping. It was really standoffish. It was like, oh, we've got to keep two metres apart. We shouldn't talk for too long. And you could kind of sense a sort of sense of like, not maybe not fear, but just sort of apprehension about meeting people. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really funny because I, as I moved to this house now. Uh, I'm new in the neighbourhood. We just met the neighbors and they are two very lovely uh, 70 something old people. So of course they have to be very careful mm. and we have children, uh, mm. but they wanted us to give them the, our contact numbers. And I went to give it to them. I was with my son, four year old. And then uh, my neighbor came out and I was just like trying to, to move away from him, you know, and move my, my son away from him. And he kept coming towards me. <laughs> and I was, Really scared, you know. Like, what if, what if we have it? You know, I don't want, I don't want to, you know, infect him with something. But yeah, it's just, it's really, really weird. You guys on on what I've been calling lockdown light. Shame in the UK. I mean, you you really aren't on lockdown. You don't know, you know, don't you live? You guys being out and about. It's like wow. Yeah. So we should um, say that Simon, you're in Spain at the moment, right? I'm in Spain. Yeah. Um, and which... they've only just after six weeks of a hundred percent lockdown, you were not allowed to go out unless you're going to buy food or medicine. Um, only on Sunday did they, uh, that's two days ago, did they let us take our children out. It's only if you've got children and they're climbing the walls that you're allowed to go out. And it it is a a very different situation out there, which is why I think that public gatherings um, will actually feel weird. It depends on how long the lockdown goes on. Um, And we were discussing whether there's, I'm trying to organise, helping organise an event in September, October of this year in London. And everyone's saying, um, you know, even if we can book a room, even if travel is available, do you think it's for PhD students? Do you think the students will feel comfortable being in a room with 30, 40 other people? And I'm thinking maybe they won't. I don't um, think they, they will. If there's no, if there's still a risk, even if there's, you know, the the outbreak's been contained and it's deemed kind of safe, there will be, I'm sure there'll be spot outbreaks. I think most people who are expert in this area agree 
that it's impossible to eradicate the virus completely in the short term. Mm -hmm. New Zealand is kind of aiming for that. Australia uh, hasn't claimed that it is, but you know some people are slightly optimistic that that might be possible. And for countries that are island countries that can control their borders very carefully, I guess that's a little bit more realistic perhaps. But of course, if you have people coming in from outside visiting, only one person has to have it and that's it. So I think you're right. I think talk of conferences happening in September, even if there is a bit more free movement and the lockdowns are, you know, less less draconian, it's still going to be a big issue. Yeah, I, I had the same experience with my four-year-old Teresa. Um, that um, we had a long conversation with her, saying, "Right, remember when you go out, social distancing, two meters. Don't go anywhere near anybody, any other children." The, the, the moment she saw another child after seeing no other child in person for six weeks straight, and um, she kind of ran up uh, and started trying to wrestle with them. Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as that, but it was it was very difficult to keep them apart. Did you freak out? It was weird um, because, yeah, um, I mean, as an aside, um, the, the virus situation got a lot more real for me in the last few days when there's this realisation that children can get this kind of rare disease. I don't know whether you've been following mm. the news on that. Yeah. It's seemingly coronavirus-related. And I have both a 94-year-old and a 4-year-old in my family. My, my grandma is 94. And, you know, the family would be devastated if we lost our grandma. Um, but it would be a fraction of the devastation that we would have if we lost our 4-year-old. And the kids being exempt from this almost. I mean, I know that lots of children have sadly died. Um, but then children as a population are not nearly as affected. If this starts affecting children in the same way it affects adults, um, then, you know, it will be absolutely morally bankrupt to start you know thinking about public gatherings or going out breaking their breaking the rules and so forth and it really got much more real for me in the last few days thinking that my daughter because i've always thought she's you know, kind of immune from this to some extent yeah. so so it is weird um and you know spain one of the reasons that spain and italy have been so affected is because we're very social countries and it only began to realize how social we are um when this happened there's no notion of um dinner parties here you know in the uk Australia too, you invite people around, a few friends. Um, here, we get together in bars and restaurants, you know, 20, 30 people at the same time. So it's an incredibly social situation. And to see people face masks on, everybody's got face masks when you go out, um, all two meters apart, it's really weird. And it's also weird looking out of my window and seeing uh, you know, this man and woman across the street, and they're less than two meters apart, and I'm thinking, how dare you? <laughs> uh, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're absolutely conversing with each other. Do they not know the risk and feel like kind of throwing something at them? It has changed. Attitudes have changed. I, I, I don't think we're going to go back to the old normal anytime soon. Switching the, the conversation towards creative AI, what does everyone think the opportunities are? I mean, should we even be considering working in this area now, given that there's all these more kind of pressing concerns that we have? I mean, we can't go to galleries and museums where you would normally see exhibitions are all closed. The creative communities in most countries have been the, on the top of the list of people to first lose their jobs or not to be able to earn an income because live venues are closed, performances can't happen. What, what does it kind of mean for the creative part of creative AI? So I did think about this a little bit, that there's two reasons to be optimistic. Um, if you look at computational creativity rather than the kind of new wave of creative AI, Computational creativity has involved scientific discovery since its inception. It doesn't get coverage as much in the conference anymore, but there's there's various people who are, would class themselves in creative AI. People like Nada Labrach and, and her group, 
they do um, text mining of biomedical data. They do um, scientific discovery. That's always been their interest. And uh, Truth and I worked on a, a system um, which can do data mining, finding things you didn't necessarily know you were looking for as a creative act. Uh, and I do think that um, there's a possibility for old-style computational creativity in this sense to help analyze the vast amounts of data coming from the COVID-19 pandemic to help find you know, discoveries which will lead to cures and vaccines. Again, in my conflict itself, I'm also fairly sure that lots of us in computer science are a bit deluded thinking that we're going to be able to help with this pandemic. So many people and so much funding is being directed towards COVID-19 um, research, in fact, most of it in the UK, seemingly everybody in computing is finding a reason to be um, studying COVID-19 data. Every data scientist now is a medical data scientist. That um, I'm not sure there is actually that much chance for us to, to help because there's already established protocols and there's already, um, in fact, in Oxford, they've already started fairly large-scale trials of, of drugs. And the other opportunity which I thought um, of is that we in Sensilab contribute artistically, we put an exhibition and so forth, but we also contribute with tools and, and development of computer science norms and uh, methodologies. And I think there's people need to be entertained and amused at home a lot more because they are at home a lot more. There's less, less reason to go out, to go to the cinema and so forth. And we do make tools with which people can be creative and being creative is a pastime and so, you know, my particular focus over the last year or two has been so-called casual creatives. These are apps with which you can yourself, whether you have any background in the arts, make art. Um, it's not world-leading art, let's say, but um, it's driven me on, at least, um, in the creative AI field to make my tools more accessible and get them out there, ship them to the general public so that they've got another thing to be doing with their time in the evenings when they would ordinarily be going down the pub. So there's at least a, a few opportunities. And to, I, I thought long and hard about your question, John, should we even be doing this? And my, my answer is emphatically yes. You have to remember that I, I grew up in my academic education at Imperial College in London for, for a decade. And I used to go to work every morning, literally going by people trying to cure cancer and other people trying to cure, uh, trying to solve the energy crisis. So I literally worked with people doing that kind of um, work. Um, and I would go in and I'd work on video games and, uh, and the art. So I've built up the res this resistance to questions of whether we should all be doing this more worthwhile work. Um, because I think there's just living isn't enough reason to be a human being. We need fulfilling lives. And the arts absolutely do fulfill that. Video games do that, um, art exhibitions make life worth living. Um, so there's no point in living forever if there's nothing to do while you're doing that. So I do think that we should absolutely be carrying on with uh, our research, whether we think it's going to help with the COVID-19 situation or not. And just as one final point on this monologue, I'm sorry about... Is, taking uh, over, Simon. Yes, this will be another opportunity for the risk-averse members of the population to step in and say, don't do that, don't do this. The other huge um, driving force for that was September the 11th. Know, the um, the terrorist attacks, which uh, absolutely slowed the progressives down in the world for decades. This is going to do the same, of course, and I think we need to push back and we need to start saying, um, no, we still want the world to be progressive. We want movement. We shouldn't 
anything to do with social distancing, which we need to do to survive, needs to be done in a progressive way and not just retrenching to Victorian times like the Conservatives would want us to do. So going online with lecturing has to be done in a really creative, progressive, wonderful way so that online lecturing is absolutely better than physical lecturing. It isn't at the moment, for sure, but that doesn't mean to say we can't be innovative in that practice. So I hope that we're not going to go into this uh, yet another kind of spiral of regression. I agree a lot with that. I think I'm part of, uh, if you, you see in the news a lot, how uh, the government is also trying to focus on mental, he mental health. I think that's one of the, the, the reasons why in Spain they allow now children to go out, right, mm. for the mental health yeah. of the children and the parents as well. And yeah, I mean, very closely to me, for instance, my mother, she's 76, and uh, she's in, in Colombia and they are in lockdown. She cannot go out. It has hit her very hard to be in that lockdown because she's a very active person. And, and you know, part of the things that we have done, my, my brothers and I have done with her is precisely try to come up with ways of entertain her, you know, and, and two things. And different than thinking of COVID-19 and the fact that you, that she is in lockdown, playing games in her mobile phone, uh, enable her mobile phone as well for her to talk to her friends, you know, through Zoom and things like that. So I think, yeah, we, we, it's important that we also keep uh, doing research in creative AI because, I mean, maybe not the, the COVID-19 situation won't finish soon, but, I mean, we have to also look at, at, at our different things other than that as well. I mean, life has to go on in some way as well. And I also think, I mean, part of what Simon said as well is to, maybe we can also rethink how we can help, you know? We, we are uh, creative people, so we can, we can see how we can help with that. I don't know, games that uh, it tackle the issue of, of the social distance and things like that so that we can have more um, like influence in some way. I wanted to talk a little bit about the future, like some speculation about the future. So if you think about the tools that have become rapidly adopted, like Zoom, so virtual meetings, so we're, you know, we're talking over Zoom at the moment. And those tools were designed for business use, for meetings. So people basically sit in front of a screen, talk to each other, and then the meeting finishes and, and that's over. And prior to this situation, we had social media, which was largely kind of text, video and photographically based. So people can send pictures of themselves on Instagram. They can send videos on TikTok. They can post text messages in tweets. But that was just peripheral to the kind of face-to-face -face interaction that we were talking about earlier. And now all that has gone. And, you know, Nina mentioned just meeting someone for the first time in a while and ha having eye contact with them. So do you think there's going to be some kinds of new technologies or what kind of new technologies need to be developed to actually accommodate those kinds of things where you want to meet someone, but not for the purposes of a meeting or the fact that you have to arrange a specific time. Like if you would meet a couple of friends and say, let's go down to the pub for a drink. I mean, of course you can put on Zoom and drink on Zoom. It's not quite the same thing. You know, for example, could it be more virtual? So if we were in these kinds of virtual environments where the environment itself, we were avatars and we could look at each other and make eye contact with, with other avatars, where people have this kind of, to use the cliche, second life, they're in this virtual social space where they can be anyone or anything that kind of liberates them from all the constraints of being locked down. What does everyone think? Yeah, I mean, just as an aside, I've taken a screenshot of this Zoom call to share on the Sensit Lab random channel later on. As it goes on, you and Nina are getting darker and darker and darker. I noticed that. If I, if I step John, back. John is almost... <laughs> 
there we go, a disembodied head. It's like a David Lynch film. Um, yeah, exactly. So there are ways of doing Zoom calls, which you know, we, we don't get eye contact, as Nina pointed out, but we can have a little bit more light, perhaps. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and technologies will, yeah, uh, will adapt. But you have so to, example, but at the moment we have to be all sitting down, we have to be looking into our computers, yeah. we have to be talking. That's not the kind of way you normally socially interact. You know, like if you're in a conversation yeah. with a few people, sometimes you just turn to the person next to you and, you know, two people have a sub-conversation in a bigger group or, what. you know, there's that yeah. kind of thing and you can just step out and go and get another beer and then you come back and sit down and talk to someone else. All of those things have disappeared in this because everything well, is too constrained. The attempts to replace them are just not working. It's a problem. I, I do think it was, we're probably a decade away from virtual reality um, headsets. To for, if, if this had happened in ten years' time, VR headsets will be so small and and brilliant that we could imagine walking around, feel like like we're in a room with somebody else. Um, but I'm not sure the technology is there for that yet. I was at the Evo MuseArt online conference where we tried to recreate the poster session and everybody giving a normal talk um, was, uh, or any talk was given a, a Zoom room. It was all very carefully done, very brilliantly done by the Evo MuseArt. For the Evo Star, I should say, team, you were meant to wait in your Zoom room and hope that people would come and visit you. So I sat there for about an hour with my glass of wine, slowly. Oh um, and uh, one person finally turned up about five minutes before the, uh, the time, and we had a, a quick chat, and then, then that was it. That was a closer session over. We couldn't tell who was in what other rooms. We couldn't see where people were flowing, whether they were even there um, or, or not. Um, so it really was a, a very poor substitute to a normal post session, um, and there was no substitute for going down the pub and talking, you know, rubbish with your colleagues and friends uh, over into the small hours. So yeah, but I'm, I've no doubt that technology will step up. I can imagine someone somewhere is working on a, a, a camera which is behind the screen, so that you can actually get eye contact. It doesn't seem that difficult to be able to really feel like over online you're getting eye contact. I, I think technology is absolutely going to step up, and this is the moment for it but it won't ever be quite the same or as good, but there's reason to be optimistic. I guess it depends on how long it lasts for too, because for, to develop that's going to take probably, you know, a couple of years maybe. So, yeah. Yes, no, because I, I think there's going to be a shift. I think so many people in, in cities like London are going to realise that two hours commute a day just to sit in an office, just to say you've been there. You don't really interact with that many people. The interaction you get um, in a normal office environment isn't that much different to you, the one you get in Zoom. Notwithstanding all these things we've said about water cooler moments and everything, I, I do think that people are going to push back and say, do I really need to go on that flight to wherever to basically say hello, glad hand some people and come back a few hours later. Do I really need to commute every day so much? So I think video conferencing um, and online technologies, I think, are, are really going to ramp up um, after the virus lockdown has, has ended and we're, we're back in a normal situation. Mm. And I think this will be good. I, at the opening of the Evo Star Conference, the very first thing that the chair of the whole conference said to us all on Zoom was, we were all thinking about this anyway because of the environmental impact of conferences. Academic conferences are really, we, we are really bad offenders in terms of doing you know, flying places where we could absolutely do things um, online. And that was the first thing that that person chose to, um, to talk about. Mm. So I do think there'll be a shift towards more online and I hope the technology will step up to, to help with that. And with a job in two different countries and a, a third country that you live in, some, <laughs> you're the worst offender there, aren't you, for 
<laughs> well, yes and no, because when I come to Melbourne, for example, um, I stick in Melbourne. So two months in the same place is great for me. It's very rare for me to be uh, based in Europe and spend two months in the same place. Well, it was rare. Now it's a new normal. And in many respects, if it wasn't for the world imploding around us um, and having a four-year-old constantly knocking at the door, um, it would be, be great for me because I, I travel too much. But actually, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a very bad offender, um, but I'm not as bad as many other people, even in my own field of competition creativity, who go to far too many conferences. It's absolutely their way of life. Some of those chose to be online forever. That might not be a bad thing. Hmm. So maybe let's talk about some of those good things. Nina, what do you think is the best thing about being in this new situation for you? I mean, yeah, I definitely agree with Simon's points. Like, it is good to be, I think there is a lot of like unnecessary travel, even just, or just like less control that you have because you're expected to be somewhere like five days a week, mm. which I kind of always have just not really understood. So, this definitely suits my schedule better. <laughs> but um, in terms of research and creativity and stuff, maybe I'm just trying to see the positives and things, but it's kind of a perfect situation for me to continue doing the research that I, where, like, kind of where I was headed with how do we use technology to kind of promote reflection and have some, have some kind of like introspective experience using the technology or like some, some kind of new experience that we can't just get with, without these tools. I just, it's a good, it's a good time for me to just sit and like think about what would I want now that I'm just isolated so much, or maybe I would need, maybe I want something to actually help me to like regulate my emotions Mm. at this point. So what, what kind of tool would I need or what kind of tool would I like enjoy using? I spent a lot of time just thinking or just being like, what, what do I really need? I guess it's kind of like a mental health thing as well, I guess. I mean, I find it's actually given me a lot more time to do the things that I just wouldn't normally have time to do in the sort of standard, you know, going to work, having to work certain hours because that's just the social convention. Whereas being at home, you've got time to just sort of, you know, sit on the couch and read a book for a while or Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think all those kinds of things where we start to question, well, why did we ever do things this way is actually really positive. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. totally. Teresa, you've been doing this for years, right? So it's not that new for you? or it- Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It's not that, that new for me. And I was, as I said before, I was really looking forward to actually being in the office and with people around mm. me. And so, yeah. but, but it's, it's still, I mean, good. Um, as you said, you have more time to think. I think a lot of people have found that they work actually more and it's not always that good, you know? And I think in research for us, is we, we really enjoy doing research, but there are some other kind of jobs that maybe they don't like the idea that actually they are being, you know, they have more time for more meetings and more things. So people use that time. But in our, I mean, in academia, in research, at least personally, I really like, I really enjoy doing research. And if I have more time, yay. <laughs> one, one bad thing, actually, oh, well, we're in the positive, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Well, you do yeah. negative. It's for negatives are fine. We always get to yeah. them eventually. <laughs> okay. I was just going to say that I have to cook more, you know, because yeah, we are. And so to launch uh, and that, so, so that, that's not that good. <laughs> and then you're also here and you, you see sometimes like, ah, you know, I have to wash those clothes or, you know, things. So, so, so it could be distracting as well sometimes. That part. It, the, the difference between enhanced working from home during normal times and enhanced working from home during the time of a lockdown. And I think when we're out of the time of a lockdown, I think more and more people will realize that working from home absolutely has 
lots of advantages, not that many disadvantages. I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, another positive, which I thought about right at the start of this podcast when you mentioned going down the pub jump, was possibly, um, again, if there's a will and we, we handle this better, if the world does become, become more online, we can address things which are wrong with it. Um, and specifically gender imbalance that uh, I've been you know becoming more and more vocal about this recently that um, in computing we have a you know, the most horrendous gender imbalance and one thing is that um, when the leader of the research group goes down the pub with some of his or her team they don't realize that they are advantaging the people who are in that group going down the pub and disadvantaging the group that don't go down the pub um, and they don't realize it when, when they come to hirings and promotions and, and just working with them. And this is well documented, you know, this is not a revelation. Um, but it's very difficult to tell people not to go down the pub. You know, you, you don't want to be the guy who says, if you go down the pub, then that woman in your group is being disadvantaged because she doesn't go down the pub. And uh, But now, of course, with lockdown and more home working, um, we have a chance to uh, reflect upon that. And maybe there'll be a leveling of the playing fields um, somewhat. Um, again, it needs to, there needs to be a will for this. You know, the, the old ways definitely advantage men in the world. It's just absolutely obvious. And maybe now um, that will be, now there's a new way of doing things. There's potentially a good thing to come from this will be a, a rebalance. That's interesting. But I would have thought that by just stopping everyone from going to the pub, it's, it's, not, it's not, <laughs> not the solution. It's well, not the solution. No, but, but you'll have social lessons. I mean, so there are many socials happening where research groups are getting together online with their drinks. Mm. That maybe doesn't have to disadvantage people who've got to go home to children because it can be organized in a different way. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's another conflict. Many, many conflicts. I want to save my money um, because, you know, we may all lose our jobs. Um, so therefore not going down the pub. But then if, I, if I'm saving all of my money, then the economy is going to tank if everybody stops spending money on going down the pub. So there, there's just, you know, too many variables at the moment. If we go 10% more, more meetings after the variety has uh, subsided, 10% more meetings are online, then we can start to use that to our advantage to you know, make the world a better place. I mean, you would think that maybe they would stop people going to the pub. I mean, and, and that, but actually I have felt the opposite. I have felt, okay, now there are more social gatherings mm. because they are online, but it really conflicts me with the time that I'm with my children. And I try to, to really respect that time with my children. So, yeah. That's basically following on from the, the physical world of meetings directly after the nine to five work ends or the nine to four work ends. It could have definitely been done differently. They could have socials during the afternoon now. Um, lunch time, for instance, would be a better. Lunch time socials with people aren't going out for lunch. They could have absolutely had a lunch time social when working parents don't have commitments to their children. Mm. It just feels like, you know, with a little bit of thought, we can use this new. Uh, new mentality to social distancing and online presence worked for our advantage and that is a case where it hasn't been done. The virtual drinks we have as a department are kind of strange because there's too many people to have a conversation and if you have to sit and watch 20 other people and one person can speak at a time, uh, software like Zoom is designed for meetings where one person talks and everyone listens and then someone, then the next person talks but that's not how people interact socially. You know, there's lots of little separate conversations and those kinds of things. So I think the technology has kind of let that aspect of it down and trying to retrofit something that was never designed for that, you know, doesn't make it a great experience. Maybe we should turn now to 
the concept of tracking. So many countries around the world are now promoting this idea of having apps that you download that track you. Is this the beginning of the surveillance state, Nina? I know you're very keen on surveillance. Are you, have you downloaded the tracking Weirdly, app? it totally is. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole surveillance state, like working from home, as much as I do love it, that is kind of like, the, that's like the next stage into entering that like surveillance state where people are feeling like they are being tracked in some way. And so that's what makes them behave or that's what kind of, maybe not fear, but motivates them to kind of work. Or, you know what I mean? Because they feel like, there is some way or somehow that something yeah, they're being be observed. Yeah. Yeah. They're being observed somehow. But the, like- but the apps aren't monitoring what you're doing. They're just monitoring your contact via Bluetooth with other people. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't mean that it's happening like right now. I think yeah. it's just kind of, that's the next step. The, like the, the society in which everybody can actually work productively from home and like withhold the, all of their agreements and stuff probably is a state in which, there, there, I don't know, I feel like there would be some kind of like fear motivating people for everybody to be able to like follow those rules. Hmm. So I think, not that it's happening now, but I think it's, it seems like this is probably the thing that's going to trigger that shift because I feel like we're heading towards that and now it's kind of just going to accelerate it. I mean, and the apps, I don't think it's inherently like bad or good or anything like that. I think it's just, this is the direction society is going. I don't know. I see the positives though of the app, the tracing app, but if you don't trust the government, it's hard to- Who does? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's hard to want to. But don't you it. think that there's an issue of public good, right? So the purpose of them, supposedly, if we ignore all of the privacy issues and the fact that they can be hacked and things like that, the purpose of them is to actually end the kinds of lockdown and social distancing sooner because if enough people supposedly download this app and someone becomes infected, then you've got a contact list that you can follow up on. It's not a complete solution. I don't think anyone's claiming that just because you have the app that makes you safe, but it does help to contribute to perhaps suppressing outbreaks much faster than you could do without it. Mm, I agree. I think, I mean, I do, I do think that it does make sense to download it. For me, I'm not really see. I'm not really contact, like in 15 minute contact with anybody at this point. In, the, in the future, might you be, you know, if you yeah. eventually when you emerge from your lockdown, yeah, I think that if I was going and actually going into work and stuff, I would probably, and I and and I also kind of had this feeling that like this is a danger, which, I, you know, in certain cases I might just be like, okay, I think it's fine. But I, sensing that kind of danger, I guess, where, where where's the line drawn? Yeah, I think I would download it for that reason. and But I wouldn't have it for very long. Like, only when it's like really necessary, I'd be like, okay, I'll have this app. Yeah, I think the, not normally. the Australian government is arguing that as soon as it's not necessary, you can, you know, you delete it and they'll yeah. delete all the data. Have they got something similar in Spain, Simon? Not that I've heard about or the UK, which I've been watching. Oh, no, in the UK, they're going to roll out an app, sorry, in three weeks. um, And they're going to hire 18,000 people to do contact tracing. That's their pledge. Um, I keep on top of the UK's developments more than the Spanish one because of the language difficulties, I have to admit. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think this will be a a new norm that governments will be able to track you. Um, But that was happening anyway with face recognition so this is more of a a concern i I tend not to get enlivened about this kind of thing i think i leave it to people like nina to get more upset on on tracking and and so nina's your moral (laughs) conscience (laughs) yeah i'm happy to defer to to someone who cares Uh, but I'm, i'm hoping that the world will step up and get better on making 
vaccines and uh, and cures that we shouldn't be a, a year. I think a year minimum from start to finish of this is optimistic, but not impossible. Why can't that be a month? You know, really, there, there should be a better, faster way of doing this. It's desperately worrying that once this has subsided, that the governments will use the old line, you know, when it's raining, it's too wet to fix a roof. And when it's not raining, the roof's as good as any man's roof. Um, they're just going to look to austerity and cuts again and not worry about this. I, I'm hopeful that, that things like contact tracing that we'll be able to, you know, turn on our apps and tell people where we've been, who we've met, and that will really help. Um, I'm hopeful this will be a part of a new norm and it won't be used for nefarious purposes, but I don't think that's the case. I think, with, especially with populist governments, they're going to want to really use this to their advantage in the long term. I, I was just going to say that, I mean, I don't think too much about it, to be honest, because I, I mean, we have, we download so many apps in our phones and, and they have access to so much data that I don't know I just don't want to worry about it I think I guess I guess I think like okay my life is not that interesting so <laughs> what can they find mm. I don't know I I don't get to correct with with that and and I think it, the good that it can do at least in this situation it, it, it is worth downloading the app currently optional like nobody's mandating you do it but it's yeah, exactly. not a big stretch to imagine that for instance certain privileges might be granted to people who have the app. And I th I'm not sure about this, but I think in China there is, I mean, they have an app too that you have to show. I know you did have to show to, uh, to for certain movements within cities and things to show that you'd been tested or to show that, you know, that you um, hadn't had the virus or if you had. So while it's great that there's this opportunity to, to sort of stomp things down, there's also the opportunity for people to use it as a kind of a privilege. And, you know, there's been talk about vaccination certificates or immunity certificates, which the World Health Organization has argued against. But it's you can imagine countries that want to open their borders and they want to allow international travel, but they don't want to just let anyone in who might be infected to start instituting these kinds of regimes where you're asked to do things that perhaps you know, prior to this you wouldn't have thought were imaginable that might suddenly become the norm. Well, remember when Wuhan got locked down? It was a few weeks before I was meant to fly to Beijing and it was fairly clear that I wouldn't be going. Mm. And the whole world was saying, how can they possibly lock down a, a city of 11 million people? And uh, the next thing we know, we're locking down entire countries of tens of millions, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people. Um, so, you know, there's the, the draconian measures because they are so necessary have been adopted fairly happily by populations, you know, notwithstanding their... Republican right-wingers who really want to get out and shoot their guns again. So, I mean, I, I worry about the dystopian aspects as well, though, John. Um, that I was just imagining then an, an augmented reality app on our Google Glasses, and we're all walking around, um, and it, it calculates the chance, the likelihood that because of their contacts and the tracing, that everybody on the street, you know, it gives them a, a rating, and a big red arrow comes above on the augmented uh, reality. Yeah, avoid. It's just a, 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 a person, basically. Yeah. yeah, it actually sounds very sensible. But then you think it's it's an episode yeah. of Black Mirror. It's yeah. uh, or snog, marry, avoid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I have to watch <laughs> this. I haven't watched it. You haven't watched Snog, Marry, Avoid or Black Mirror? No, no. Neither. Okay, start with Black Mirror. Okay. Mm. So and, and it could absolutely be that, you know, you don't want to snog this person um, because they are, you know, they may well have been infected. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, it can be used very badly and, and there's a tendency to overreact and get very, very cautious. Um, but then, 
maybe that is what is needed in the short term to save lives. Again, it's, it's conflicting when we don't know how it's going to play out. All right. Well, we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask, well, I wanted to finish with or a proposition and a question. So the first is a proposition. I'll just ask everyone to think about this. Once we get over this one, how soon do you think it'll be before the next one happens? I mean, people have been warning about pandemics for the last couple of decades. So it's well known that this kind of event was going to happen. And in one way, it's been lucky in the sense that the mortality rate so far hasn't been too high, although, of course, that's, you know, that's not really very comforting to anyone who's um, suffered a loss from this. How are we going to deal with this when it happens again? Obviously, we might be slightly better prepared, but the chances of this happening again are probably fairly high. And the other thing I wanted everyone to think about or to answer is what are you going to do differently when you know the lockdown is is mitigated to some extent and you can become part of society again what do you think you're going to do differently well i've been doing kind of what if thought experiments in my head so this outbreak is 10 times more deadly than normal flu yeah and that kills a lot of people every year anyway and so this kills a lot more people imagine that was a hundred times more deadly than flu and you could start getting a grasp of the of the likelihood of death for you or someone you know by just going outside. It it becomes very shocking how obviously society would change if you if it's a real risk to go down the shops to get a loaf of bread um, or a huge risk to go out for a meal or a a pint down the pub. I don't know where I'm going with this to be perfectly honest. It is it is scary to think that it seems quite arbitrary that this is 10 times more deadly. What if it had been 20 or 100 or 1,000 times more deadly? Well, things like SARS and MERS had up to 50% mortality rate, but that was also one of the reasons why they didn't spread so rapidly because people... As soon as they showed symptoms, they basically ended up in hospital and died. So Yeah, so it's not just a mortality rate. It's the, the ability to pass it on, the ability to get reinfected, the ability to um, be asymptomatic, get pass it on. Um, I mean, just imagine that these factors were all gone up and, you know, society would be very, very different. Everybody else would be doing these kind of thought experiments. And I think the, the, the world will be faster um, and less tolerant of leaders like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson who try and bluff their way through it. In Johnson's case, for a week, where they were, we were still discussing herd immunity a, a week after most of Europe had gone into lockdown in the UK. I think there'll be less tolerance, and I think um, there will be more outbreaks. And I, my guess will be that's a question. Did he like change his direction after he got sick and then came back? Did he just all of a sudden be like, oh, maybe we should? <laughs> yeah, maybe no, this is not a good idea. We have an an old colleague uh, at Imperial, and now that I work with him, uh, did this modelling saying that we could be talking about 250,000 people dead if we go for the herd immunity route. And one of the world's most famous epidemiological modellers is at Imperial, and him and his team uh, put together this report saying basically all of the people who are old or um, have an underlying condition are going to be wiped out by this because herd immunity only works when there's a vaccine and, and basically gave him the advice that he should have got a lot earlier. The advice that they were giving all the other countries, he could have just looked at Italy and Spain um, and realised that if they're doing lockdown, then the UK should do lockdown. So no, he didn't He didn't change his mind. I'm hoping he'll change his mind about the NHS after being literally having his life saved by them and start putting money into them and not cutting like they have done for the last 10 years. But who knows? The, the one thing I will do more, this is going to sound weird, uh, after the lockdown is stay in more. Um, I've started 
playing the piano. <laughs> I was going to say the same. <laughs> Stay yeah, indoor. Um, so is this going to be the yeah, end of pubs? Uh, no one's going to want to go down to the pub after this. Is the, the, <laughs> there will be that. There will be that mentality, that that sensibility that it, it will feel. Do, do you not look at, at films now and see a large social gathering, like a, a wedding portrayed on film, or or a, you know a scene in a restaurant? Think, oh, they're way too close to each other. This is weird. <laughs> Uh, it, it's mm. it's horrible. So I mean, you look, you guys have you have definitely got lockdown light. Teresa was talking about the childcare that she's got. Childcare, wow. You know, <laughs> yeah. so if you had real lockdown, maybe you might be feeling this a bit more. That um, social distancing is absolutely a thing we're going to choose to do, perhaps in the future. I'd be completely distracted, not just the fact of um, having to work with a with a child in the house the whole time, um, but the the world imploding has made me more distracted than I've ever been for the last six weeks. Of, been really difficult to do um, knuckle down but i bought myself a digital piano a lovely piece of furniture right at the start of the lockdown and i've taken up the piano again and i'm starting thinking about generative music and trying to give francois pache a run for his money in the long term absolutely re uh, found the joy of, of playing the piano um especially now you can plug headphones into yep, a digital you, piano you don't have to know anyone else yeah, yeah, and, and make mistakes. If you're a bit of a perfectionist, then letting everybody else hear you learn a piano piece is, you know, <laughs> is a nightmare. So it's wonderful. So I, I absolutely will be spending a bit more time with my piano, even when we can go out again. Teresa. Okay, so what I'm going to do differently? I think I think I will I will do more commuting to bike. A bike, you know, will be more mm. minded of, of the environment. I think being here, being able to like go out to a walk around the house and, and things like that. I don't know. I like, I always take the bus basically, but I think I would enjoy a lot to just go in a bike and enjoy nature, you know, to see yeah, the world <laughs> in some way while I commute. I try to take advantage of that time in some way as well because. As we were talking before, when, when we work from home, we don't have to do the commuting, so we have more time to do other things. So, yeah, I don't know. I think the thing that we do different is try to use the commuting time more productively. Mm. And well, I think, work. you know, the, one of the worries is when lockdowns start to become loosened, that people are going to avoid public transport because that's, they're worried that's about... another thing, yeah. yeah. So either the road system is going to completely clog up or a lot of cities are actually adding either temporary or permanent bike lanes, extra bike lanes to allow people to, to cycle. Cycling yeah, is- yeah, precisely. That's another thing. I, I was just thinking, well, when we go back, then if I'm in the train, for instance, I take the bus and the train sometimes, it's just crowded and I will be really stressed. Yeah, go everyone's going to be very, very close to people there. So, yeah, definitely, I think that, that would be the different thing that I would do. Yeah, but it's a, it is a big test if it's a day like today where it's super cold and pouring with rain. Is it is here? I actually, I actually talked about it with my husband. I said, I mean, in days like today, unless yeah. I have to go to teach or something like that, I wouldn't go to work like this. You mm. know, I would, I would just stay home. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> class dismissed. There's a backstory to that, of course, because Teresa and Julian lived in the UK for a long time and always you know, they used to the bad weather. weather. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yes, um, and I remember Teresa saying it would be lovely to work in a in a country with good weather. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, so sorry, we're looking at places like Colombia. Yeah. Um, well, Julian years. was always okay with it, as far as I remember. Yeah, Julian um, just loves the UK, and I love the UK as well. Just disclaimer. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, the weather. <laughs> That's the one thing I really like the weather here. One other thing to add to my things that I'll do differently is get more hardware in. So I'm going to be working at home anyway because that's what I do. So I'll be 
Um, but it's made me think about the things I like to do more. Um, and I got into 3D printing on my last day at Centre Lab last year for the first time. So I'm going to get myself a little 3D printer. I'm, I'm still trying to get the Axie Draw robot uh, arm. It's not so easy. So, yeah, I, I will try and try and recreate a little bit of the Sensi Lab at home um, where we'll put everything if it doesn't matter. But, um, mm. yeah, <laughs> in case I can't come to the Sensi Lab, but also to be able to you know, bring more physical practice into my normal routine. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Nina, what are you going to do differently? Mm, I think kind of similar to what Simon said, but not more social distancing. Like, I think I would still definitely want to take advantage of seeing everybody and doing social things. But I think just being more clear about like having private time and work time and then social time and like collaborative time and being more clear about having boundaries between those. Cause you, I feel like I would have, I have more flex. I, will, I hopefully will have more flexibility just cause the world will be a bit more like that. So just kind of like when I am in that mode of just wanting to like work or write to not trying to do like too many things at once, but when you really need to be collaborative and like, spend all day with people really like taking advantage of that as well. So not trying to do them all at the same time, I think. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's weird because your home is normally, you, you know, prior to all this, you thought of home as being, you know, like where you put your feet up and you watch TV or you have friends around or it's not a workplace, right? For most people. And now suddenly mm-hmm. it's got this confused thing where it's a workplace, it's a childcare center, it's a, it's a you know public bar, perhaps mm-hmm. it's a whole lot of different things, and you can't do all of those things simultaneously. And so it's sort of weird to like when do you switch one off and turn the other on? I actually like that fact because I think that sort of distinction is is you know kind of arbitrary. Like I don't just do my work at work. I like working at home, and I work you know sometimes I work weird hours because I just feel like I got something I need to do, and I really f- want to do it. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of given people the just put the idea in their head that oh well maybe work doesn't have to be the way that it used to be maybe work can be different. Mm. Yeah, just even like seeing like I used to kind of just be when you kind of do the nine to five, which I did when I was working. That and then it really feels like weekends. You're really not supposed to do anything. You're just supposed mm. to relax and have fun or whatever. That I don't really like that kind of like structure. That's like tells you on those two days that's when you're kind of having to have your good time, and then nine to five you're supposed to be working. But I like that it's kind of fluid. I mean, I know it's also difficult and it's very distracting, but that fluidity of like on an, on norm, normally on like a 7 p.m. And at like nighttime, I wouldn't go home and just like do more work. I feel like I just have this like, okay, day's, day's ending. I'm just going to like relax and hang out. But these days I'm just kind of like whenever I feel inspiration or like want to just like do something, it doesn't really matter, you know, like what time it is or what, I, what we should be doing, like having dinner. Like I kind of just go with whatever I'm feeling. There's lots of advice coming out from people who work at home or who have studied it. Um, and lots of it is um, make sure you have a clear separation between, you know, where you work. If, you, if you've got the space in your apartment, between where you work and where the, the, the family is and really make sure you still preserve your weekends. And it feels like I'm with you, John, that they haven't really interviewed academics or researchers um, who have a much more fluid way of looking at their working life and, it, and it's because as Teresa said we love our jobs we are very privileged to be doing research because it's a fascinating thing to do and so I've completely flouted all of those rooms so the room I'm in right now I'm very lucky I could use it as a as a office the entire time and I do but for large parts of the day it's also our Star Wars lair where me and my four-year-old enact Star Wars movies too much uh, information <laughs> Simon <laughs> and I, and I, but I thought about that you know do I want Emma my little girl to think 
think of this as the Death Star, um, or you know, because I could keep it separate. But um, in the end, you know, it's it's much better to and with only a small apartment. We're lucky we have a, a you know a decent apartment, but you you, you don't have the luxury of many of the things which are being given over advice. That your office can't be you know used for anything else. It needs to be used for everything in a lockdown. And I'm hopeful that yeah, people will begin to realize that work doesn't have to be this completely separate part of their life, and there can be a fluidity and 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 people can work out their own ways of handling working at home. Yeah, I actually like the idea when 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 I'm working at home is any place I can work on. Really, I I don't have an office at home like a place. Mm-hmm. I really move around the house what I feel like I want to work, and I I really like that actually. So. And actually, having children that go to childcare, sorry, Simon, <laughs> it, it helps to, to manage the thing of the time, like when to stop. I mean, I have to stop at five. No, not today, but yeah. I have to stop at five. That's, that's what I have to do. And then if I want to, again, uh, restart is when they go to sleep. So there is, and, and weekends are completely... I know because, yeah, with children, it's very difficult in some way. So fascinating to see how different it is for depending on your on your situation you know like uh, like when you don't have a children it's, it's a lot easier just to go on the weekends as well and whenever you feel like, like you said nina whenever you feel inspiration you just do it it's not my case <laughs> definitely not my case if you're on a hundred percent lockdown like we are in spain there is no such thing as weekend i mean it's absolutely exactly the same day yeah. as no. the other days of the week mm-hmm. it's really odd and you forget things like shoes i mean i really I've been telling so many people in emails, I've no idea what shoes are for anymore. Um, they're literally never going out. So, yeah, it's a very odd existence. Mm. You guys should try it. Just pretend, you know, that you're not allowed out at all for whatever reason. You know, it's enlightening. Nice. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're taking a positive outlook, Simon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think. I know, like, I'm actually, you know, I'm an indoor kind of guy anyway, um, so I really do like being inside. But even I have cracked under this situation, you know, and went out for an hour's walk because I'm allowed to now yesterday uh, and really enjoyed the, uh, the fresh air. Yeah, I, I try and go for a walk each day. I actually find, I really look forward to it because, you know, we, I mean, we live just near a creek and you can go for a walk down the creek and it's like you're in the middle of nowhere, apart from the thousands of people who are also doing the same thing. <laughs> but it does give you a sort of new appreciation for the kind of environment that you want to live in. I mean, we're in urban environments, but having that natural space and the space to walk and everything, I mean, it's well known, is really important, I think, for your mental health to just get out of the house and breathe some fresh air and hear some birds singing and watch the water flow and all that kind of stuff I find really important, for me at least. There's a lot of strange things. So every night at eight o'clock here in Spain, we all open our windows or go on our balconies and start clapping every single night. Every night? Yeah, every night. It's not just to say thank you to the health care workers who are you know, saving lives, which is the, you know, the, the official reason for doing it. But it's also quite social. We, we're building up you know, relationships with people in the you know, opposite apartment block. And it's something to really look forward to. And I have my one beer a day at that time because I can't oh. have more than one beer because we only go shopping once a week. And beers are really heavy and take up a lot of space. So you, you've only got enough for, you know, one a night. It really does make you, you know, realize how lucky we were before the lockdown when you could go out and have a beer in a bar or go to the supermarket and get as many as you can, you know, putting your trolley so, yeah, it's, it's, but i'm sure your liver thanks you simon your liver will thank you for yeah <laughs> for this period i love simon's mentioned going down to the pub at least five times <laughs> it's clearly yeah. what he's missing yeah. the most 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess that would be it, yeah. But it will feel weird. It will feel really odd going out to a pub again, elbow to elbow with people, and, you know, seeing someone sneezing in a corner. It's going to take many months, if not years, before that becomes normal again. Since this happened, we've kind of seen the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. So, you know, in the early stages, there were lots of people fighting in supermarkets and panic buying and that kind of thing. But that's largely given way. And now there seems to be a lot more empathy between people. So, you know, even when I go on walks, you look in people's windows and there's kids who've drawn little rainbows with clouds on them and lots of little signs giving messages of sort of camaraderie and, you know, we're, you know, the, the cliche, we're all in this together and that kind of thing. What does everyone think? After this is all over, will people be nicer to each other or will we just go back to the rat race that we had before everything happened? Do you think people will learn a lesson and there'll be more empathy between people? I think it might go the other way in terms of things like immigration. About ending on a low. Um, yeah, let's end on a low then. Um, I, have a, I, have a, I have a high point. <laughs> yeah, give us the high point, Nina. There you go. I well, I think just this is purely judging from South Yarra in Melbourne. <laughs> But I think because Australia and Victoria is doing okay, the stress and like the worry and anxiety is kind of like faded away a little bit. People are doing a lot of stuff now on the weekends. When you just go out for a walk, your daily walk, like it just kind of, there's this vibe that everybody's actually, I think because they're staying home more, that maybe it's just in South Yarra though, but people just kind of seem happier because like they're happy with their lives and so they're just kind of nicer or just like more pleasant. Like There's more of a pleasant vibe, I think. And maybe that's reflected just kind of people being a little bit more relaxed or like the fact that they have had time to rest or something, which I think if that continues on, maybe people actually could be happier from uh, some of these changes. Is that just me? No, I, I agree with you. I think, but we, I mean, we're in a really lucky position, like you said, that, you know, like we haven't had it very bad here. And if you've got a job, if you've still got an income and you're working at home, I mean, let's face it, you don't have to face a commute to work. You don't have to worry about all the stress of kind of getting to you know, things on time and everything. You've got to get to a meeting because you just turn on your Zoom chat. Because there's nothing to do at night or on the weekends, it's more time for people to be reflective, which I think in modern society was really lost. So because you always mm-hmm. had to be occupied doing something. And now people have actually had time to reflect on what they do, how they do it and think about it. I think that's mm-hmm. actually a really good thing. Is that actually true? Is that even slightly true in Spain, Simon? That we are all more reflexive now. and or just um, that there is any kind of nice... I mean, I guess you haven't really been out, so it's hard to judge, but that people kind of seem relaxed or happier? No, they're, they're just not out. Um, even with the slight easing of the lockdown, I went out yesterday and walked around for an hour and maybe only saw 20 people in a city of nearly a million. But do you, um, but do you, you know, feel happier? Do you feel just personally... Or are you the same or just different? <laughs> just different, I think. I, I wanted to end on a, on a high note and talk about the, the politics changing. Now, we've had 10 years of austerity in the UK, cuts left, right and centre. And then within a week, and the same in the US, um, the Treasury has opened up their checkbook and spending hundreds of billions of pounds and dollars um, as if, you know, there's no, no tomorrow. So uh, I think they were... Well, and this is a socialist thing to do, of course, is to spend and tax rather than to, um, you know, have austerity cuts. So hopefully, and this is my political leaning coming out, that socialist countries are more friendly and do look after the poorest. And we are going to see, what, 
10, 20% more unemployed across the world because of this in the short term. In the UK, you were either hardworking or an unemployed layabout during the time of the 10 years of the Tory government. There was no in-between. There was no notion that, you know, you could be a hardworking person who just doesn't have a job at the moment. It was incredibly polarised. Yet even the Tory government are going to find some of their friends and family out of a job now in their very elite circles, uh, and they're going to realise that, you know, we need something like universal wage, like they've tried out in, in Finland. Um, so I'm hoping that the the politics will be more caring, especially for more vulnerable people as a result of this. Who knows? We have horribly right-wing governments across the world at the moment, but let's mm. see. We have a socialist government here in Spain. To be honest, I, I think it depends also on the on the culture and the countries. I mean, uh, I mean, I know different countries that have been in conflict, and after they finish the country, the conflict, sorry, people forget, and that's a thing that happen. You know, people tend to forget the experience. Like they, they it, it may be in their minds at the beginning of when everything finished, but then people forget about it. That happens. It's a kind of a defense mechanism, you know, to forget the bad things or something like that. I would hope that, you know, the the sense of looking after each other and kind of thing would, would be greater. But I'm, I'm not sure. Time will tell, I guess. I mean yeah. part of the fallout will be the economic fallout, which we you know you touched on Simon, we haven't really talked about, but governments are opening their coffers now, but eventually someone's gonna have to pay for all this stuff. Who will that be? Will it be in generations to come? Will it just be wiped off the, the debt register? Will it be something that re, you know kind of governments really rethink how they distribute money as you're suggesting? I, I think that's a really interesting question. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Tune in to the next Creative AI podcast sometime in your future. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye.